The question this week comes courtesy of my wife. It's really for anyone who is vaguely aware of the Grateful Dead, who enjoys a few songs, Uncle John's Band maybe, or Ripple, or Friend of the Devil, but from the outside looking in, finds the devotion to the Grateful Dead baffling. Okay, Clint, what's today's question? Today's question is, what's the deal with the Grateful Dead? That's the age-old question. This is a big topic. I mean, it's so expansive, and we're certainly only going to scratch the surface. This is more like the Cliff Notes version than a deep dive. Right. For anyone who's interested in the deep dive, we recommend Amir Barlev's 2017 multi-part documentary, Long Strange Trip. And though we're both big fans of the dead, we're going to enlist the help of a few different experts to help us at least begin to unlock the mystery and the magic of the Grateful Dead. Okay, let's start with the basics. The Grateful Dead formed in 1965 in Palo Alto, California, just a short drive south of San Francisco. Its founding members were Jerry Garcia, lead guitar and vocals, Bob Weir, rhythm guitar and vocals, Ron Pigpen McKernan, keys, harmonica and vocals, Phil Lesh, bass and vocals, and Bill Kreutzmann on drums. Mickey Hart, drums and percussion, joined in 1967, and with the exception of Pigpen, who died in 1973, those musicians, Jerry, Bob, Phil, Bill, and Mickey, along with Robert Hunter, a non-performing member of the band who wrote many of the band's lyrics, they make up the core of the Grateful Dead. Other musicians come and go over the next 30 years, each contributing to distinct chapters in the band's history. People like Keith and Donna Godchow. Keys and vocals. Brent Midland. Keys and vocals. Bruce Hornsby. Keys. Okay, you're starting to see a trend here? It's the spinal tap of (laughs) keyboard players. A few of them spontaneously combusted. (laughs) They have over 200 albums in their discography. 200? During their 30-year run, they made 13 studio albums and nine contemporary live albums. They've sold 35 million records. 35 million is a lot, but pretty small number given... Their influence. They never sold records. That's right. part of the That's legacy part of, the, of thing. the Grateful Dead. They played 2,350 shows, 2,200 of which were taped. That number, by the way, 2,350, is a Guinness Book of World Records for most rock concerts ever performed. In the 1990s, the fourth decade of their career, they were the highest grossing American live act of the decade. $285 million off of touring. And only second in the world behind the Stones. And that's amazing considering that Jerry dies halfway through the decade. Wow. Ranked 57th on Rolling Stone Magazine's list of top artists of all time. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994. And the following year, Jerry Garcia dies of a heart attack while in treatment for his heroin addiction. As you said, Clint, this topic is so expansive that we need some way to focus our conversation. There are eight letters in the word grateful, so we're going to arbitrarily focus on eight reasons why they are a big deal. In fact, maybe the most important American band of all time. Let's dive in. Number one, the Grateful Dead songs. They wrote some incredible songs, some of the best of all time, and their music journeys and meanders through so many different styles and genres of music. 
Many of their songs were written with the band's resident lyricist, Robert Hunter. Songs like Ripple. If my words did glow With the gold of sunshine And my tune Truckin' Truckin' like a dude man Once told me got to pay your hand Sometimes because it worth a dime If you don't lay them down Uncle John's Band Ramble on Rose. Did you say your name was Rambling Rose? Ramble on, baby. Settle down easy. Friend of the Devil. Franklin's Tower. Scarlet Begonias. Sugary. Casey Jones. Driving that train, pound cocaine. Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. Trouble ahead, trouble behind. And know that notion just crossed my mind. Jerry and Robert wrote many of those together. Robert Hunter and Phil Lesh wrote Box of Rain. Look out of any window, any morning, any evening, any day. Mickey and Robert wrote Fire on the Mountain. Long distance runner, what you standing there for? Get up, get on, get out of the door. The song Sugar Magnolia was Robert and Bob. Sugar Magnolia, blossoms blooming, that's all empty and I don't care. So my baby down by the river, who should have to come up soon for there. But in 1971, Robert decided to hand Bob over to poet John Perry Barlow. Robert Hunter felt really strongly that whoever was singing his lyrics should stick to his words rather than improvise or rearrange the words. After a concert at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York, Robert and Bob argued over a couplet in Sugar Magnolia. She can dance a Cajun rhythm. Well, apparently Bob sang some different words, or maybe in a different order. And Robert Hunter apparently turned to John Perry Barlow and said, he's yours. And from that point forward, Bobby Weir collaborated with John Perry Barlow. Songs like Estimated Profit. California, preaching on the burning shore. California, I'll be knocking on the golden door. And a song that 
became the catchphrase for fans in the parking lot looking for a ticket. I need a miracle. I need a miracle every day. Someone who knows something about songwriting, because he's in a great band called Midnight North, but was also raised on this music, the son of Phil Lesh, Graham Lesh. Let's ask him about the songs of the Grateful Dead. I can't wait. Hello. What's up, Graham? Hey, how's it going? There Long time go. no talk. Yeah, seriously. You guys are getting back to gigging, right? Yeah, we just had one a couple days ago. I actually have a show tonight uh, with my dad at Terrapin outside. Then uh, my band Midnight North is coming to a lot of places in June, including yeah. Vermont. So yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Welcome to the age-old question. This week, the question is, what's the deal with the Grateful Dead? As someone who is in a band and mm -hmm. is a songwriter, but also someone who really grew up on these songs, has played these songs so much. What makes these songs so special? Like you said that um, I've had the dual experience of growing up with them pretty intimately, but at the same time then, you know, when I got a little older and started actually playing music with my dad and also writing my own music, like you, you think you know them, but then you you learn them uh, and, and it's, they come at everything a little sideways and there's all these little tricks and stuff that even if you think you know it perfectly, until you've tried performing it, a lot of these songs, uh, you don't really know. You can kind of like see the patterns of like, Jerry does things this way and Bobby does these things this way. And then obviously they worked with some of the best lyricists of all time and right. Robert Hunter and John Barlow and literally writing a story of Americana. Because there was that sort of grounding force of those lyrics, there is a real connective tissue to these songs, whether it was, you know, the songs written by your dad or by Jerry or by Bobby or whoever it was, it feels like a Grateful Dead song. Yeah, absolutely. And the actual members of the band would, would be the ones writing all the melodies, right? And these lyrics just flow perfectly from that. Graham, do you have a, a favorite Grateful Dead song? It changes all the time. I do gravitate towards the Working Man's Dead and American Beauty albums. I have a real soft spot for some of the Garcia Hunter songs um, that were never recorded from like the 90s and late 80s. So many roads. Thought I heard the blackbird sing up on But I mean, uh, so many amazing tunes and it really just depends on the mood or, or what I'm like learning at the time, you know. These songs are so enduring in the fact that there's tribute cover bands all over the country every night of the week playing yeah. these songs and they translate so well to other people playing them almost more yeah. than any other band in the history of recorded music. I think a part of it is like I was saying, they're all such unique players. It's like, I can only speak for my experience, but it's kind of impossible for me to sound like either of the guitar players. And, you know, I, I dabble in a little bass and I can't sound at all like my dad. Very no, different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's the same for all of those. All, you know, every, every member of the band. In that respect, it would seem like they would be like an incoverable band, right? Like, because the songs are so, they beg for you to just put your own spin on it. You can't sound like Jerry, so just play it like yourself. But the songs are still the songs, you know? Um, yeah, you, and the songs have their own magic. It's not just about getting the right tone right. or anything like that. You can do Ripple as a punk song. We've played it as a Rolling Stones style song and it's super fun. It's a hand me down. 
the songs is just the melody and the chords. And that's just a framework for you to interpret it as you will. And personally, I like that better. You know, I, what I think is cool is when people put their own spin on it. And that's when I play what I like to do. Graham, I want to ask you about Midnight North. Yeah. I really love your band. And I know that you have been working on a new set of songs. What's the story with the new album? It's coming out in, uh, in early, early May. So very soon. Uh, we've put out a few singles. We're very happy to be getting these songs out in the world and start playing them. That's a little different for us. Usually we'd sort of tour on songs for like a couple of years and then just like bang them out in the studio. But these we sort of like finished writing in the studio and it was a real cool different process for us. And now it's time to learn them, right. <laughs> you know, right. or relearn them. Yeah. yeah. Get out on the road. Tears dry quickly in the beating sun. Look tired, but you're not the only one. This runs over. What's your next move? Are you caught between the darkness and the shadows of the moon? Graham. It's so fun to talk to you. Clint and I look forward to seeing you when you guys come through Vermont. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, it's been way too long, Rich. <laughs> and it's yeah. great to meet you, Clint. Yeah, you too. Talk soon. All right. Talk soon, buddy. Bye. Bye. Oh, Coyote, was there a better way out? The reason they have lasted this long and are continually tributed over and over again is because the songs are just so good. Mm. And yet it allows people to make them their own because even the band never played them the same each time. That was kind of the whole shtick is that they took a song, they knew the verse, they knew the chorus, but then they treated it like a jazz tune and they would explore. And obviously some songs were more exploratory than others, but that is a very unique experience as a working musician to get together with a group of people and play those songs. It allows you to really stretch your own limits. And the thing about Robert Hunter's lyrics is that they create a mood in and of themselves through many of these songs that we just named. There's this old America yeah. or this deep nostalgia, or it's hard to put your finger on, but we, there's something about his lyrics that take me back. They feel like they've been around forever. You're so right. Thinking about a song like Friend of the Devil. I live from Reno, I was trailed by 20 hands. Like right there. Poetry. And it's cinematic almost. Right. Cinematic. That's a great way to describe it. What's your favorite Grateful Dead song? Boy, that I that's as hard as Trying to find a favorite Beatles song. Yeah. I guess Shakedown Street is an all-time favorite of mine. Having played it hundreds of times and just seeing the reaction of the crowd to that song. Well, you also played that with Paige McConnell right. and John Fishman yeah. at Hug Your Farmer. That was half of Fish you played that yeah. song with. Epic.
that song. My band, The Sweet Remains, we play Brown Eyed Women. I just love that song. I love the chorus. I love the lyrics. Brown eyed women in red grenadine. The bottle was dusty, but the liquor was clean. Sound of thunder and the rain pouring down. And it looks like the old man is getting on. Great songs. Great songs. Number two. The Grateful Dead's musicianship. I'm interested to hear you talk about each of these players. Let's start with Phil Lesh. Okay, Phil Lesh didn't start off as a bass player. And so he is coming to the bass from such a different place than most bass players come to the bass. He treated it as much as a melody instrument as the thunderous bottom of the band. He's an incredibly unique bass player in that, first of all, he plays a lot of notes. He plays all up and down the fretboard, low, high, low. You know, he does these incredible runs that actually go over the beat. That's what I like about Phil Lesh. He'll, instead of landing on the one, he'll keep it going longer than you expect the run to go down. And then when it drops, it's such a satisfying feeling. Interesting. It's like melodic and rhythmic. Yep. And, and, And influenced a lot by jazz. I think he played trumpet, which would influence the single note playing. So Phil Lesh is the backbone of the band. Let's talk about Bill Kreutzmann and Mickey Hart, because that's the other thing that's strange and in some ways definitive about the Grateful Dead, these two drummers. So Bill Kreutzmann is such an interesting drummer. First of all, the Grateful Dead plays a lot of slow, slow songs in giant stadium settings, which is an incredible feat to pull off, to be able to play something at 65 beats per minute and have 70,000 people engaged. Yes. But what Bill Kreisman was able to do was not speed up. He's a master of holding the tempo back. Because in some of these jams, you get so riled up, you get so excited, you're in front of thousands of people, you just want to speed up. All of a sudden, you're at 85 beats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he was just very good at keeping the band in check. Hmm. He also played such interesting beats, and he was a very good listener because they had this section in every night they would play space where it was completely free formed and they would listen so well. And Bill was at the heart of that because he is keeping the time and defining the feel of where the band is going to go. And he was in it since the beginning. So he really understood Jerry. He could follow Jerry. He could lead Jerry in some cases. And Mickey Hart, he does a lot of those big fills and sort of dances around Bill I feel like Bill is the heart, the ticking center of the band. He's the engine, and Mickey is more like... He's like a special sauce. He's like the accents. He's the accents. Let's talk about Bobby Weir. Bobby Weir is much younger than Jerry. He was just a young lad when he joined the band. They had to convince his parents. He was like 16. Huh. Jerry was his guitar teacher at this store, and they started jamming. Bob is such a unique rhythm guitar player. And that's the thing about Bob Weir. Is Bob Weir is a rhythm guitar player. He rarely played leads. Throughout his 50-plus year career, he rarely plays guitar leads. But because he played rhythm so much with Jerry, who was a very noty guitar player, would play a lot of notes, Bob had to find a way to fit into the band in such a way that he created these rhythm guitar chords the guitar players still marvel over. Hmm. He would play these three-note cluster chords where he wouldn't be strumming huge 
big open chords ever. He was always playing simple, rhythmic, unique sounding clusters of notes to poke through the mix. Wherever Jerry went, Bob was able to follow him and give him a a rhythmic and chordal center to be able to explore and go off. Let's now move to Jerry. So let's move to Jerry. I don't think he's ranked very high in Rolling Stone's list of greatest guitar players, but they don't know what the hell they're talking about. (laughs) I mean, the guy is an absolute legend, icon, deity. As a lead guitar player, he basically was a very modal player, meaning he played in the major scale. He didn't play pentatonics like David Gilmour or Keith Richards. He played very melodically in the major scale. And specifically Mixolydian, you know, that may be a little over people's heads, but he defines that in my head as a guitar player. And he has these little nuances that he does where he'll peel back the guitar in a four note cluster. And that he does so often. The other thing that Jerry does is he does this half step bend where he'll work himself up to a note and then take the note right underneath that and bend that note up to the note he was just on. That's so Jerry Garcia. It's so interesting. When you hear Jerry, you know it's Jerry. You know who he should call for musicianship? There is a guy who knows more about Jerry Garcia than anyone else I know. Not only is he an incredible guitar player and singer, he knows down to the pedal, down to the tube, down to the speaker, exactly what Jerry used when. And I think he would give us a great insight into the musicianship of the Grateful Dead. Let's call Zach Nugent. For years, Zach has led the Dead Set Tuesdays at Nectar's in Burlington, Vermont. But he also did a couple years with Melvin Seals as Jerry Garcia in the Jerry Garcia Band. He's renowned in the scene and knows so much about Jerry and the Grateful Dead. Love it. Hello? What's up, Zach? How you doing, man? You're on with Rich Price as well, and uh, welcome to the age-old question. What is up with Jerry Garcia? You know, it's funny. There's a uh, there's a certain degree of, like, X Factor, right, that, like, we'll never figure out. Uh, that band ran so smoothly. They, they all support each other so thoroughly and evenly that uh, Jerry's, like, extra, extra natural shine that he came with um, was even more apparent. But... It's really, I talk about the Grateful Dead a lot, uh, especially to my bandmates when recreating this music or trying to play the same style. It's like being on some sort of court or field of the sports team and passing the ball, you know, like a basketball game. If it's all improvised and uh, everyone's out there with, with a ball trying to play their own game, then you're totally done for right from the start, right? You got to work as a team. And the whole idea is to get this one ball as a team through the hoop. And so, the Grateful Dead were experts, experts, experts at passing the ball. You've devoted your life in many ways to the Grateful Dead. I'm from not a wealthy family, a lot of like dilapidated houses and beat up cars. And, you know, like I've been a I've been a homeowner. Um, I drive a new nice car and I, I've never written a song in my life. I play Grateful Dead music for a living. This music supports my entire life tell me about the the study of his tone and recreating it 
you know, it's cool because the Grateful Dead were such pioneers in their sound and being friends now, like being super involved in the scene and being friends with the Grateful Dead's road crew or the Grateful Dead's audio engineers. It's clear that they didn't leave any stone unturned. You know, they would like buy brand new, they'd get a brand new Rhodes keyboard or something and they'd take the whole thing apart and upgrade all the capacitors or um, they would modify everything. So nothing was stock with the Grateful Dead, which is a real testament to them as artists, just general artists as well as musicians, because they uh, were such strong believers in and having the best of the best. The, the dead, the, they got wind that the Navy was using Macintosh MC2300 amplifiers on submarines to run the sonar. So Kid Candelario, who's a buddy of mine now, but he was, um, you know, he was a, a big guy on the road crew. He brought two helicopters to Binghamton, New York in like the early 70s and got all of the MC2300s that Macintosh had and brought them back to the bay on these helicopters. And uh, the Navy called the Grateful Dead and they were like, yo, we need some of those for our submarine. You guys took all the 2300s. And the dad was like, sorry, dude, we need, we got to have good sound. We got the wall of sound to run. Let's talk Bob Weir playing with Jerry Garcia. I think Bob Weir is a way better guitarist huh. than Jerry. I think Jerry takes the cake in overall musicianship. Jerry had great chord vocabulary, a nice scale vocabulary, but Bobby just became so studious about the guitar. I think in a lot of ways, because Jerry was just on this like trajectory, just like flowing out of him and just playing guitar constantly and always producing these amazing parts. And Bobby was like, well, damn, I got to find something cool to do to stay out of the way of this like wizardry. Like all of the instruments I've ever heard Jerry play, it's pedal steel guitar or banjo um, or even piano. It's never like, um, Oh my God, this is like some virtuoso, like crazy, you know, like been studying since it was, they were a child. It's not like that, but you immediately are like, oh, that's Jerry Garcia playing that instrument. It's been a pleasure having you on the age old question. It's been a pleasure being here. I appreciate you boys. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. Number three, their live act. When Bruce Hornsby introduced the dead at the band's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, he said, To me, the Grateful Dead changed the idea of a rock show from something really rather strict and calculated to something very loose, unstructured, a rare situation where they play a show where the music is always up for grabs. Believe me, I know about this. There were many times when I would be on stage with these guys and I didn't know what the hell was happening. <laughs> True. The Dead Show, to me, is about the best party you can go to. It's something much more than just a rock show. You could make the case that the Grateful Dead were the most important live act ever. It was through performing that they established their following and legacy. Because of their body of work, and because they leaned into improvisation and these musical conversations with each other, there are some performances where, in my view, the wheels come off. <laughs> right? Yeah, definitely. But there are, of course, tons of examples of them working really as one organism. This hypnotic synchronicity. I love this quote from Nick Palmgarten writing in The New Yorker in a piece called the glorious inconsistency of the Grateful Dead. He says, Any deadhead worth his stash is a connoisseur not just of the good stuff, but also the bad. If you play by the seat of your pants, 
you are occasionally going to fall on your face, and you have a band that may have stumbled as often as it soared. He goes on to say, The uncertainty, the chance at musical transcendence amid a tendency towards something less, was what kept us coming back. This argument is like the East Coaster on behalf of his weather. The nice days are nicer when there are crappy ones in between. And you come to savor the misty mornings, the squalls, the blizzards, the cold snaps that freeze the ponds. That is an incredible, incredible quote. I love it. You do. You give it the benefit of the doubt because you know magic can happen. Yes. And you want to be there when it does. You know who we should call for this segment? Who? I want to call Mahali Savalitis. He is a guitar player and frontman from a band called Twiddle. And Twiddle is one of the hottest jam bands on the scene right now. And they do a lot of exploration in their music. And they weave songs together, much like in the way The Grateful Dead did. Mm. However, they do it completely differently. Love it. Hello, sir. Welcome to the age-old question, Mahali. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. We've been talking about The Grateful Dead, how they inspired this entire world of improvisational music. And you are in one of the biggest improvisationally based outfits going at this point. What's it like when you're about to walk on stage? You have a roadmap planned, like a set list, but how much of the show is improvised? With us, with our with our band, with Twiddle, um, we have, you know, the written parts of the songs. But within those written parts, we leave room for improvisation, which means pretty much we're just going out from the root chord and abandoning the progression and the feel and the vibe of the tune and seeing where it takes us. It's a bit of a risk and it's incredibly rewarding when it clicks and it works. And we've been doing it for long enough where we sort of know uh, at least how to get it there. But because you're taking a risk and it is improvisation, so many other factors go into it that it's not always going to be fantastic. There's, you know, not so great jams too. It just, that's sort of the risk you take. Have you found a special sauce? Yeah. I mean, for, for what works for us is, is Ryan and our, my keyboard player, Ryan and Gub, a bass player, uh, you know, they're able to communicate really well with each other through the number system and they have signals for each other. I use my ear to really listen and pay attention to what they're doing. But when they start to communicate a little bit, it moves the, the jam or the improv section forward and brings us to all these new spaces. A lot of times though, you're just sort of listening and waiting for a little pocket to emerge, right? And then when it does, everybody sort of realizes, oh, this is good, we should, we should vamp on this for a minute and stay there. One of the harder parts is to know when to just chill and let the groove take over uh-huh. or to try and keep progressing it you know, to a peak. For me as a listener, that like epic tension release the grooves, the pockets we can sit in that really feel like we're, you know, creating something nice and and adding to it slowly as opposed to just pushing and pushing and pushing and building tension and building tension. Because when you're more patient, the the tension release builds are way better. When the jam isn't going well, what does that feel like? Because the dead had terrible nights where yeah. things were just not clicking. What is that like in the, in the moment? This is what I've realized. And I've actually read some Jerry quotes that sort of are along the same lines where like, personally, you could be having a terrible show. You could think everything is terrible and the jams are bad and you're not connecting and you're not clicking. Maybe someone else in the band was like, I thought that show was great. 
And, you know, I'll talk to our front of house engineer and Sam will be like, I thought that was rocking. Like, that was awesome. What do you mean? And then I realized like, well, I just was having like a bad day. Maybe something happened. I wasn't in the right headspace going into it. You know, something else is, is sort of tugging at you. And, you know, I'll listen back and be like, wow, I was so wrong. That was awesome. And it was my own personal in my head experience as to why I thought that wasn't a great show. So we've sort of learned in Twiddle that, you know, unless there's some sort of catastrophic failure on stage, which does happen sometimes, you know, we, we don't write like the easiest music to pull off. And, and it's a lot. It's very easy to make mistakes. So, you know, unless that happens, we've sort of adopted the mentality that like no matter how you feel about the show, you can't really judge it till you've listened to it. Huh. There's so much that goes into the improvisation that's unrelated to the music. I mean, there's yeah. trust. There's so much trust that you have to have in the people you're playing with. And after 15 years in with yeah. Twiddle, you guys have that deep trust. We take the risks. So we put ourselves in that position. I know plenty of bands and, and bands I freaking love and have toured with that have a really polished show and they play the same kind of set, but they're delivering to their fans every single night, a beautiful, consistent, polished, perfect show. But if you went to see them in four different sh cities in a row, you would see the same show. Right. Complete with the same banter. Yeah. And the way they dance and the way they move on stage and everything's choreographed. And there is some value to that, but it's not it's never been our thing. And it's it's not the school of music we came out of. And this is really this whole mentality came from the dead i mean it did they, yes 100%. they were the originators of this whole concept I, I based my whole musical career on the dead what they did and 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 how fish and other bands i looked up to at the time sort of carried that mentality and spirit along with them so grateful to have you on looking forward to seeing you guys play this summer yeah maybe you come up with us one time you think i would love Get to come up, up. Well, duo shred. Hi, bro. Thank you. Talk to you soon. You too, baby. Number four, the Grateful Dead as a secular religion. So the Dead and their fans forged a community that was about more than just the music. Deadheads considered themselves members of a tribe almost. In his foreword to David Shank and Steve Silberman's amazing book, Skeleton Key, which is a dictionary for this community of deadheads, John Perry Barlow, the lyricist and partner of Bob Weir for many of the Grateful Dead songs, describes the spirit of the community this way. One of the most positive developments in the history of spirituality, a religion without beliefs. The dead were nowhere to be found on mainstream channels. The band's music was transmitted by word of mouth cassette tape by cassette tape of the band's tape shows. People base their lives on the Grateful Dead. And their livelihoods. And their livelihoods. In fact, you know who we should talk to? Who? My old friend, Eric Graham. Eric Graham went on multiple, multiple tours from 86 through 95. Love it. Did a lot of shows. Let's call Eric. Let's call. Eric, welcome to the age-old question. Thank you for having me, Clint and Rich. What we are talking about now is the Grateful Dead as a secular religion. Tell me about your experience with the Grateful Dead. Well, it's, it's interesting how you put it as a secular religion. I think what it was was uh, for people like me, I was 15 when I went to my first Dead show. I realized, I said, I want more of this. How did you make a living? 
touring with the dead? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a statute of limitations involved, I'm sure. No, um, really, it was whatever was accepted or acceptable. And the hustle went in many different ways. And it went through assorted products and chemicals and, and food, sandwiches, blah, 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 T-shirts, pipes, bottles of water was a big hit, you know. There was multiple ways of doing it, but the first question you asked when you were on the scene is where's Shakedown? Where's Shakedown Street? I got to find out what's going on and I got to find my people and get busy because, you know, you're either getting busy to make some money or you're getting busy to get inside. How many shows did you see, do you think? I went to about 150 and I saw about 133 was my last count. In terms of devotion to the dead, what was it about the dead that created that atmosphere? Was it the songs or was it the culture or was it the people? Yes. Unequivocally, yes, to all of that. Every news clip you see, they all have this position of like, well, there's quite a circus that came into town. And all of these sort of people on the outside looking in are, are mystified, not really scared because the tone was always that they're very peaceful and they smoke a lot of pot. <laughs> so, you know, that was that was the perception. And mostly like some of them could use a shower. I think the religious part was getting out of a place that you might not feel comfortable anymore. And when you find that circus, that's where you want to be. On Grateful Dead tour, I was just one of the one of the acts, you know, one of the one of the actors, one of the participants in this circus of, of lunacy, you know, as perceived by the rest of the world. And then the best part was turning people on, you know, that was pure joy for me. People that you would never think would get into it and boom, they're in. Right. And it wasn't a hard sell because it was that free. You were allowed to express yourself. There's like 2,200 recorded shows out of the 2,350 they played. Right. I believe which is that. an incredible number. Yeah. That's devotion. And what that ends up being, and you asked about the religion, is that that's the gospel, man, <laughs> that's passed on, you know, and right. that's that's part of it. And then you get the storytellers that can attest to the gospel and say, oh, well, such and such happened this. And, and Jerry knocked over a mic in Minneapolis and then he tried to pick it up. And oh, oh that could have ended bad if it weren't for Steve Parrish. Boom, you know. <laughs> and, then, and there's also the sacrament as well. I mean, yeah, acid. There was a sacrament. There's, there's yeah. no, and we, and we, we referred to it as such. All right, man. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for including me, man. Thank you. Bye. Okay. I mentioned Skeleton Key. One of the book's authors, Steve Silberman, is an old friend of mine. We met just as that book came out in 1994. After writing Skeleton Key, Steve went on to become an editor and a contributor at Wired Magazine. And in 2015, Steve published his award-winning and paradigm-shifting book on autism and neurodiversity. The book's called Neurotribes. He's literally one of the world's experts on the Grateful Dead. And he's actually featured in the documentary we mentioned earlier called Long Strange Trip. Let's talk to Steve. I can't wait. Hello, Steve here. Hi, Steve. You've got Rich and Clint on the line. 
have I not like even spoken to you in like twenty years? Twenty six years? Twenty five <laughs> oh years? More. Jesus. I was needless to say, you know, completely blown away by you then. So I assume <laughs> you've gone on to bigger and better things. Well, I'm so glad to talk to you. I want to start with how did you discover the Grateful Dead? Well, the first time I ever heard them was probably in the bedroom of a best friend of mine in high school. He was learning how to play guitar. And I remember one day he played me a recording of A China Cat Sunflower into I Know You Rider from Europe 72. And um, there's a very unusual section in the transition where Bob Weir, who's usually the rhythm guitarist, takes a lead. And it was the first time that I ever became conscious of uh, what Garcia used to call uh, the instruments talking to each other. Hmm. Uh, Garcia brought from bluegrass and old-time music that notion of simultaneous improvisation and what he called conversational music. And so I became very aware that in that transition from trying to get sunflower into I know you writer, what I was hearing was a story being told without words, but it was a very coherent story and it, it had a compelling narrative, even though there were no words. And so I had been listening before that to mostly like the music of Crosby, Stills and Nash, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of vocal music, basically. So I was used to songs that told stories through words. But that was the first time that I really got that a complete instrumental exchange could tell an equally compelling story. Not long after that, I got invited up to an incredible uh, festival up in Watkins Glen, New York. It was going to be the Grateful Dead, the Allman Brothers, and the band. And, you know, I confess I was actually going as much to see the band who I also loved, and the Allman Brothers, who I also loved, and they were on the radio uh, that summer with, I think, Rambling Man. You know, so it wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm going to my first Dead show. It was like, oh, my God, I'm going to this, you know, possibly promising echo of Woodstock. And so I got up there, and it was kind of a miserable scene. There were like 500,000 people there. The fences broke down early. There was a weird, unseasonable frost I immediately lost my sleeping bag in a sea of mud. You know, <laughs> oh, no. I was like 15 or something. But as it turns out, I was a very lucky guy because there were so many people there early that the bands decided to play sound checks a day before the official start of the festival. And the sound check that the dead played on that day turned out to be one of the best completely improvised compositions you could say because it's quite uh focused it's not rambling or noodling or any of those words that lazy rock critics throw at the dead uh it was you know complete it was like jazz it was like a completely focused performance and uh it was unique because they'd never played it before and they never played it again and i ended up being the co-producer of a retrospective 30-year career uh, box set of unreleased recordings called So Many Roads, 1965 to 1995, for the dead. But I put that sound check on that box set so that everyone could hear it.
Then my second exposure was uh, 8674 at Roosevelt Stadium in New Jersey. And it, too, was one of the all-time greatest shows of their entire career. It was amazing. They had you know, quadraphonic speakers, so the music was not only all around you, but even kind of inside you. And I remember during Eyes of the World, which they were playing, I think, just second or third song in the first set, so still early, Phyllis took a melodic lead uh, in the jam. And I remember thinking at that moment, this is the best music I've ever heard in my life. You know, I sort of vowed to myself that uh, wherever I could go see more of this, that's what I wanted to do. And so I ended up seeing them. I don't know, about 300 times after that. I want to ask you about Skeleton Key. We met in 1994, just as that book was published. And it's really a dictionary of the language, the words and phrases, the tribal community of the dead. How did that project come to be? Well, David uh, Shank, my co-author, was talking at a party with some publishing guy. There had been a book that was had been recently published at that moment uh, called something like the Dictionary for Yuppies or something like or Yuppie Dictionary. And uh, so this guy said to David, why don't you do a deadhead dictionary? And David knew that I was a kind of a, you know, elder deadhead. And so I agreed to do it under one condition. Um, what I said to him was, okay, let's do it. But it can't be some BS book like the Yuppie Dictionary. It has to be like serious kind of folk sociology, anthropology, because what we're doing is we're writing the history of a tribe, as you put it. And we're writing about a very, very rich, very creative, you know, very intense subculture. And so I wanted to do it justice. And the profound thing was that when we were researching and writing Skeleton Key, everybody in the in the Deadhead tribe knew that we were kind of in the you know, the sunset years or something. Brent, uh, the keyboardist, had died in 1990. That had been at the end of a very long, wonderful kind of late era peak of theirs, which you can hear probably to its best effect in the recording of Eyes of the World, that song I mentioned earlier, played with Branford Marsalis at uh, Nassau Coliseum. just amazing uh, by that point but but a little bit later by the time we were writing skeleton key brant had died jerry was back on heroin what david and i did not know when we wrote that book was that we were kind of taking a class picture of the last year of the school Mm. more or less uh so when jerry died it suddenly became uh you know very profound that we had just done this very extensive, uh, you know, hundreds of interviews and whatnot, a picture of this very deep and relatively diverse subculture. So uh, I'm very happy with the way that book came out, actually. But that also meant that when the morning that Jerry died, 
uh, I was one of the first people to get calls because our book was like the newest book about the Grateful Dead at that moment. Right. So it was obviously a very poignant moment for me. I want to ask you, Steve, do you have a favorite Grateful Dead song? Well, you know, in a way, I don't because it changes, you know, virtually every hour. Um, I will say that the kind of infamously flexible and expandable tune known as Dark Star almost always promises an extended musical adventure. So whenever I hear the first notes of Dark Star, I get a kind of a chill because I know we're, we're sailing out into the open ocean. You know, and who knows what's going to happen. And maybe it's going to be one of the greatest things you've ever heard. And maybe it's going to suck. But um, it's going to be a really deep probing of the melodic and interactive possibilities of that composition. So I would say Dark Star is probably you know, at the top of my list generally, but it, it can vary a lot. I mean, there, there's a song that's relatively lesser known called Addicts of My Life on the album American Beauty. And besides the fact that it has some of the most beautiful harmonies that the dead ever recorded, possibly the most beautiful, the lyrics by Robert Hunter are unbelievable. Like they're, it's close to Shakespeare at points. In the secret space of dreams where I dreaming lay amazed. I mean, that could be like Elizabethan poetry. In the secret space of dreams where someone who missed the chance to see the Grateful Dead live, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to go to a show or to 300? That's interesting. I've never been asked that question before. Um, this is what I would say. Dead shows were like meditation retreats almost in mm. that you would think deeply about your life while the music was playing. And there was something about that collective improvised narrative conversation mode that they played in that was a, a an especially good soundtrack for rumination or reflection on the deep dynamics of your life so i would often make kind of life-changing decisions based on what i experienced internally during a dead show can you remember one of those life-changing decisions well, yeah, sure. Um, I had been working for a while as a professional restaurant critic for San Francisco Magazine. It was a good job. Um, but Allen Ginsberg, the poet, had mentioned to me that he needed a teaching assistant uh, that summer uh, at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, where he taught the history of the Beat Generation, Burroughs and Jack Kerouac and all that. And I thought, well, am I going to give up this you know, promising job. And I was a freelancer. So to be the restaurant critic for a major San Francisco magazine was, you know, was a good deal. It was during a dead show that I decided to quit the magazine job and to just go work for Allen Ginsberg. That decision ended up, the rest of my life kind of flowed from that. Um, I also made a lot of friends at shows, like many, many people who are still friends now. It turned out to be a tribe of kindred spirits uh, in many ways. We'll come back to our conversation with Steve in a little later in the episode.
Number five, the Grateful Dead as technical pioneers. We talked about how the Dead allowed their fans to tape the shows, and that word of mouth sharing of those tapes helped establish this movement. But another remarkable thing about the Dead was pioneering stadium-level PA systems for live concerts. When the Beatles played Shea Stadium in August 1965 to 55,000 people, fans could barely hear the band because the music was going through the stadium's public address system. (laughs) Things improved slightly, but not significantly. And the Dead were regularly attracting audiences of 100,000 people. So the band's sound engineer, Owsley Stanley, affectionately known as Bear, this sort of mad scientist guy, had been arrested in 1967 with 350,000 doses of LSD, and he went to jail. That is a lot of doses, bro. When he got out in 1972, he resumed his role as the band's sound engineer, and he went to work on developing a sound system that could bring better sound to these massive crowds. The result was the legendary Wall of Sound, the name some people gave to a super powerful, extremely accurate PA system. It was a massive wall of speaker arrays set behind the musicians. It didn't need delay towers to reach a distance of a half a mile from the stage without degradation. The system took 21 crew members all day to set up. It took four semi-trailers to haul 75 tons of sound gear. Phil Lesh sums it up best. I thought it was absurd. Excess for sure, but we were known for that. It almost bankrupted the band. And ultimately, the wall of sound was a short-lived experiment. But like all early prototypes, it helped lead others to better approaches. But really, it was the first vision for a stadium sound system. And the leapfrogging is crazy. They would have an entire rig that they would set up in one city and have all these people setting it up all day, all day. It took forever. Then they would play the next night in a city six hours away. But that rig has already driven to the site. What's amazing about the technical side of this is that the crew members have become famous. Right. On the Grateful Dead channel on Sirius XM, their old longtime roadie friend, Steve Parrish, has his own show. And he just tells stories about the Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead channel now invites you to spend time with a man who spent more than 30 years as a member of the Grateful Dead family, Steve Parrish. Number six. Grateful Dead as the founders of jam. Originally, they played bluegrass and folk. And bluegrass, in a lot of ways, Clint, is sort of proto-jam. Like jazz, it's rooted in improvisation and requires a really deep level of listening. Let's talk about this for a second, because you're a huge fan of Fish. I am. When we think of the two most iconic jam bands, we think of the Dead and Fish. Yes, Talk to me a little bit about the difference. It all comes down to the technical part of the music. The early fish stuff is so through composed, meaning you play it the same way every night. There could be an improvisational section at the end, but a lot of those fish songs, certainly early on from like 88 through the mid 90s, they were so technically hard to play. They had to keep up on them because they're so technically complex. That's certainly a big difference between the two. The Grateful Dead songs also have this space that allows for improvisation. You don't necessarily have to know the people you're playing with. If you know the music, anyone who's into the Grateful Dead can jam together. Whereas Fish has such a thing that if you're not a connoisseur of Fish as a band, 
it's hard to replicate that unless you devote a lot of time to it. For example, at Dead Set here in Burlington at Nectar's, they have sit-ins every week with somebody who doesn't necessarily live and die by the Grateful Dead, but they can fit into that mold. And those songs lend themselves to improvisation in a way that the fish songs don't necessarily do. That's a big difference. So I don't like one better than the other. They're just very different. Part of what makes fish fish is the four of them making that sound together. And part of what makes the Grateful Dead the Grateful Dead is the songs. The Grateful Dead songs can be played simply with an acoustic guitar and translate just as well as the live improvisational band. Whereas if you play a fish song on an acoustic guitar by itself, a lot of times you miss some sections, right? A lot of those songs by fish are so through composed that without those sections, you can't replicate the song. And certainly there are a few Grateful Dead songs like that. Like you're not going to play help Slipknot Franklin's on an acoustic guitar and expect it to translate. But there's also 115 songs that you can play. Long distance front of what you're standing there for. Gotta get up and get out, get out on the door. Ain't cold music on a ballroom floor. Drowned in your laughter and dead to the core. Fire, fire on the mountain. Okay, back to our conversation with Steve Silberman. I want to ask you about Fish. How do you think of the two bands? I think that what Fish are doing is taking the paradigm of music making, that conversational, simultaneous improvisation uh, mode that the dead really invented, and taking it in their own directions with their own musical influences. So, uh, you know, there's perhaps less of an influence of, say, you know, 50s R&B, perhaps more of an influence of, say, 70s music like Frankenstein, a song that they cover, um, or the 2001 theme. Um, I doubt that Tom Marshall, who is Fish's lyricist, who is also a a good friend of mine, I doubt that Tom Marshall would say, oh, I'm better than Robert Hunter, you know. Um, he's probably not, you know, and fish lyrics have a certain element of irony, which is was very appropriate for the kind of post boomers, you know, whereas there's a kind of earnestness, although darkly shaded sometimes in uh, dead lyrics. Fish lyrics tend to be goofier, uh, more playful, uh, less somber, less profound, you know, frankly. And hear the bouncing round the room, the never-ending choral maze, the crystal haze, and hear the bouncing round the room. But uh, sometimes they just hit the right note for where you are, and just like the dead, Tom Marshall uh, in Fish would slip kind of aphoristic truths into the songs um, you know, set, set your gear shift for the high gear of your soul, etc. Set your gear shift for the high gear of your soul. You know, live it up or, uh, you know, just invest yourself in yourself and really get into what you're into. And so, you know, when people say, ah, you know, fish, they're just goofy a bunch of goofy kids you know uh yeah kind of but they're also incredibly skilled musicians and they have focused on 
listening to one another even perhaps more diligently than the dead did because the dead obviously listened to each other when they were playing but they were you know kind of infamous for under rehearsing or not rehearsing at all whereas fish you know would spend days rehearsing or weeks or months and uh developing all these kind of secret protocols for uh how they could hand off lead in a jam and stuff like that and so i feel like fish really brought the the commitment even if on the surface they seem a bit goofier and 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 more superficial Before we get to the next reason, it's important to stay humble. Am I right? You are right. We try to do our best every week. Sometimes, maybe frequently, we're boneheads. Boneheads. Rich and boneheads. Why do we do this time, Rich? <laughs> this goes back a few episodes. We talked about who went solo the best. Oh, yeah. We talked about a number of different people who went solo, left really successful bands and found success that was maybe greater than the success they enjoyed in the previous band. Yeah. We talked about Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins, both of whom left Genesis. You talked about Justin Timberlake, who improbably became this beloved and respected entertainer after leaving NSYNC. But did we forget some? We forgot some. I know we did. And we forgot someone real big. Real Big. Real, real big. <laughs> Queen B. Man, how did we do that? Beyonce. Yeah. She, of course, left Destiny's Child and went on to become maybe the biggest thing in music. 28 Grammys. 28 Grammys. She went solo pretty well. She did. Sorry, B. Boneheads. Boneheads. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the Grateful Dead. Number seven. Cross demographic devotion. So what do we mean here? Well, just before the band's Fare Thee Well celebration in June of 2015, a national poll conducted by the Melman Group found that the dead was loved across political party lines by all age groups. In fact, they had a higher favorability rating among people ages 18 to 44 than they did with baby boomers who grew up in the band's prime. And Republicans like them slightly more than Democrats and independents. What? It makes me think of that great Don Henley line from Boys of Summer. Out on the road today, I saw a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac. That came from an actual experience that Don Henley had. He was driving on the freeway in San Diego on the status symbol of the upper middle class, a Cadillac. You could see a Grateful Dead bumper sticker. But again, as the poll in 2015 suggests, the dead weren't just for hippies. They crossed over. I just think it's so funny who, who loves the dead. Right. Because generally speaking, people like the dead. But there are people that love the dead who you would never expect to love the dead. The finance guy who I went to college with and is now a multi-gajillionaire, they love the dead. Then you got the dirty, smelly, hippie Wookiee who <laughs> lives in his car down by the river, loves the dead. There's no rhyme or reason. Let's talk about a few famous deadheads. Okay. Bill Walton. Bill Walton. NBA legend. How about Bill Clinton? And by the way, his VP, Al Gore. Okay. Well, obviously one of the biggest, John Mayer. 
This gives us an opportunity to talk about Dead and Company. The surviving members of the Grateful Dead, minus, minus Phil, Phil Lesh, and added John Mayer to sort of fill in in the Jerry Garcia role. Oteil Burbridge on bass. Who played with the Allman Brothers for years and Aquarian Rescue Unit. And Jeff Comenti on keys. You know, there's been a, a lot of post-Grateful Dead lineups like Further and... The Dead. But Dead and Company seems to have found some special sauce. Don't you agree? I agree. They sell out every show they play. They have a huge devoted fan base separate from the old Deadheads. Which is interesting. They've recreated the scene in a way. some other famous deadheads how about phil jackson greatest coach of all time nba how about steve jobs founder of apple good one ever heard of that guy <laughs> small little company out of california george rr R. martin game of thrones he kind of looks like jerry how about henry rollins that's a great example of a guy you wouldn't expect being a big deadhead totally how about speaker of the house nancy pelosi how about Walter Cronkite? The voice of American <laughs> news for decades. Decades. Al Franken. Oh, definitely. Got his start on SNL, then became senator of the United States. Yeah. Number eight, serendipity. Maybe this is true of all artists that find success, but one of the remarkable ingredients in the phenomenon of the dead was just serendipity. Like, it couldn't happen again. It was this confluence of all these cultural forces at play. First in the Bay Area, the community that sprung up around the band. It was just right people, right place, right time. It was all these things together. All right, one more time. Let's get back to Steve Silberman. Before we let you go, Steve, what has it meant to you to have shared that community with the tribe of Deadheads? Well, thank you. And that's a beautiful question. And I'm going to give you a very blunt answer. You know, I'm, I'm what's known as a trailing edge baby boomer. Uh, and people born in the last years of the baby boom had a very different experience of the world than people like Garcia who were born in, you know, in the earlier range of that. By the time we got to the party, it was over. And instead of the summer of love, you know, I had the, to deal with AIDS as a gay man in San Francisco. There were a lot of things that were just shutting down by the time my generation got there. And I used to think that I was born at the wrong time. What eventually I figured out was that I had a perspective on several generations that was valuable. And I could translate some of the stuff like, you know, talk about what the dead were doing or, you know, talk about what David Crosby is doing. I'm actually uh, writing liner notes for a 50th anniversary edition of my one of my favorite records of all time, which is his first album, If I Could Only Remember My Name, which has the dead on it, as well as Airplane and Joni and all that. 
itself was a very valuable generational perspective. Uh, and so I feel like my life has had meaning and a lot of satisfaction. Uh, and that I no longer feel like I was born at the wrong time. Instead, I feel like I was born at exactly the right time. That's beautiful. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to hear your voice again after all these years. Thank you so much, Rich and Clint. I'm very honored to uh, have been on the show. Thanks, Steve. Talk Thanks, to you soon. Steve. Take care. Did you see The Grateful Dead? I saw The Grateful Dead one time, 1994 at RFK Stadium in D.C. Unbelievable. So here's the thing. I saw The Grateful Dead one time in 1994. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> I saw them in Sacramento. Okay. Do you remember anything that they played? No. No. I remember one more Saturday night. I did see the Jerry Garcia band a couple times. You did? Yeah. Huh? Where? At the Warfield in you San Francisco. Did? Yeah. Who do you think you are? <laughs> I'm, kind of, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm a big deal. So what's the deal with the dead? I guess the question this week should actually be, is the Grateful Dead the most important American band of all time? Undoubtedly, yes. I think we did it. <laughs> we did it again. That was an epic episode. Oh, my Lord. Sweating. So much fun. We hope you guys had as much fun as we did. And we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age-old question. Follow us on Instagram at The Age Old Question. Facebook, The Age Old Question. We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. 